Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. History of England podcast listeners, as you can tell by the dulcet or grating tones of my voice, I am not David, nor am I English. My name is Joel Kendrick, and I am American, Californian specifically. And you could say I'm one of those proper historians that David at times refers to. I do teach, I do write, I do get theoretical, but I also love a good story told. And yes, Sometimes you can even see me walking around in my beloved Birkenstocks. I sometimes even do wear a sports jacket with those little elbow patches on them. But I'm not just a historian. I'm also a film and stage actor of minor, minor note, as well as a teacher of American English and standard American English pronunciation. If you want to know more about me, stick around to the end of the episode. Now, I won't apologize for my dialect. But I am acutely aware that there are those of you who might be climbing the walls right now at the irritating tenor and the manner in which I pronounce words or form the grammar that comes forth from between my lips. So, a quick digression before jumping into today's topic. During my nomadic youth, I found myself wandering from place to place in Western Europe. On one of my adventures, I ran into and subsequently bummed around with a Kiwi, a guy from New Zealand. One day he asked me to read something out of my journal, and I obliged. After reading a fairly normal entry and feeling quite smug about my interpretation of what I had just written, uh, signs of a podcaster in the making perhaps, my Kiwi friend exclaimed, Yeah, I really don't like your accent. Ah, my young psyche was ever more scarred. Well, perhaps not ever more, but that experience did focus me to truly appreciate the vast quantity of English dialects, and they have been a fascination to me ever since. I heard once that American English is actually closer in dialect and pronunciation to what was being spoken in London during the 16th and 17th centuries. Shakespeare's sound, one might say. Well, this digression gives me the perfect opportunity to segue into England's first attempt to colonize North America in the 16th century and, indeed, bring her fair language and sound to our lofty shores. So, let's dive headfirst into the colony of Roanoke. 
Now, every school child in America learns about the second and third American colonies. But the first colony, Roanoke, is either disregarded or just gets a footnote mention, at least if you grow up in the western U.S. And there is good reason for this. The colony did not survive, and we don't know what happened to its inhabitants. Roanoke remains a mystery to this day. And I love a good mystery. And may I take this opportunity to officially thank you, England, for your exportation of both Arthur Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie. One can never get enough Agatha. But I've digressed again. Okay, much is known about Jamestown in Virginia. This is England's first surviving American colony, named for the reigning James I. You can still go there. You can see building remnants and artifacts. There's a good amount of historical documentation that gives us a great insight to the daily lives of these colonists. Likewise, the second surviving, and probably the most famous of all American colonies, is Plymouth in modern-day Massachusetts, founded by English separatists, also known as Pilgrims, and named after the port in England that they embarked from. If you are aware of the American holiday Thanksgiving, well, this is the colony that gave us that tradition. Again, there is a plethora of historical information. We know exactly what happened to these two colonies. Jamestown continued through the mid-18th century, as people moved inland for the new government center in Williamsburg, which was named after William III, also known as William of Orange. Plymouth was soon engulfed by its larger next-door neighbor colony, founded by the English Puritans called the Massachusetts Bay Colony. But what about Roanoke? This is colony number one for the English in the New World. Doesn't the first of something usually at least deserve an honorable mention? So let's talk about what we do know, and then we will get into some speculation. We know Roanoke was initially founded in 1585, and then restarted in 1587. We know where it was founded, on an island in the modern state of North Carolina. There is archaeological evidence, and historical documentation of its existence. But where it gets odd is that its inhabitants seem to have disappeared without a trace. And to this day, historians and archaeologists are still trying to discover why. But let's start at the beginning, when the idea for this North American colony was hatched. The idea was the brainchild from one Sir Walter Raleigh. This larger-than-life character had ideas of glory and grandeur and, most importantly, had Queen Elizabeth's ear. A little bit about Raleigh. He was born into a prominent Protestant family in 1552. Some records have him being born in 1554, but the early 1550s, we are sure. He was a fervent Protestant. He demonstrated his ferventness and showed his prowess when he joined and fought with the Huguenot forces in the French Wars of Religion. He again put on the soldier mantle and helped put down an uprising in Ireland. He and his family had seafaring experience. In 1578, he and his half-brother, Humphrey Gilbert, set sail to find a northwest passage to the Pacific Ocean. The mission failed, but his attention to North America was piqued. His experience as both a sailor and a soldier, plus his knowledge of history, his study of law at Oxford, although he did not graduate, and his way with the written word through his lasting poetry, not to mention his abundant wealth, brought him with high esteem to the court's attention. Queen Elizabeth quickly gave him various government posts. In 1585, he was knighted, and in 1587, he was made captain of Elizabeth's personal guard. 
And most importantly for our story, he was granted sole possession of the patent for American colonization, meaning that nobody else in Elizabeth's England could legally go to North America south of Newfoundland. Newfoundland had already been claimed for England under Raleigh's half-brother Humphrey Gilbert. Elizabeth's confidence in Sir Walter Raleigh was abundant. At this point, let me put to rest any ideas that Elizabeth fell short of her virgin queen status with Raleigh. The 2007 film, Elizabeth the Golden Age, suggested that Raleigh and Elizabeth were lovers, and so their influence over each other had a strong and volatile link. As fun as this is to ponder, there is actually no historical evidence to back this up. Although, from an entertainment point of view, I did enjoy the portrayal. By the way, if you've never read any of Sir Walter Raleigh's poetry, I suggest you do. As one who also dabbles in the poetic arts, I give him a thumbs up. He's good. I recommend you begin with the Raleigh poem entitled The Lie. It gives a great sense to his political astuteness. Much of his poetry was written while he was working for the Queen, and it is suspected that it was used to curry the Queen's favor, and thus, perhaps, her support for this North American colony idea that he was formulating. Now, beyond Elizabeth's falling for poetic flattery, she did have more practical reasons to listen to Raleigh's colonial aspirations. Remember, she had been in the process of re-reversing her half-sister's Mary's reversal of her father's Henry VIII's separation from the Roman Catholic Church. Elizabeth saw herself as the beacon of Protestantism. Let the wars go on over on the continent while England held the banner of Reformation high. If Raleigh could do for England and the Protestant movement what... Christopher Columbus started for Spain, then England could finally compete with its Spanish rivals and hopefully better them. So let's talk about Spain for a bit. Spain had a 50-year head start on England, and England did not want to be left out. Spain's financial success in the Americas had brought it arguably to a superpower status the likes the world had never seen. Spain, thanks to Queen Isabel and King Ferdinand's small gamble on an Italian cartographer, was now in control of a majority of both South America and North America. Save most of Brazil, their influence spread from the tip of Argentina all the way north to California and Colorado and as far east as Texas and Florida. They had acquired and were continuing to procure an immense amount of gold and silver. This wealth allowed them to build bigger and stronger ships that were equipped with bigger and stronger armaments. Their strength dominated both the landmass of the New World and, eh, to the disgruntlement of England, the mid and southern sea lanes of the Atlantic. In other words, they had dominance over any other nation ship that even thought about crossing to this part of the New World. And that wasn't all. Soon, thanks to Ferdinand Magellan, a Portuguese explorer sailing on behalf of Spain, the islands in the Pacific that became known as the Philippines, named after King Philip II, also came under Spanish control. That is incredible influence and a jealousy maker for those European countries who felt left behind. Okay, if that wasn't personal enough for England, it soon became very personal. Henry's daughter Mary was... Indeed, her mother's daughter. 
And in getting back at Daddy ever so slightly for shafting Mother Dear for that Anne character, she reversed his reformative policies and began amend with the Roman Catholic Church. And to solidify her commitment to returning England to a most Catholic state, she married cousin Philip II of Spain, making Philip, in effect, from 1554 to 1558, the King of England. And to make matters worse, in 1556, the Spaniards became the proprietors of the Low Countries, right across the Channel. And as if to remind England who was boss, the Low Countries was affectionately named the Spanish Netherlands. Spain was now less than a hop, skip, and a jump away. Even without England, Philip, at this point, had more territory spread out around the world than any other monarch before him. Maybe, had England continued with Mary's rebirth of Catholicism, England could have partaken in some of Spain's wealth. But that is neither here nor there. The reality is that Mary, or Bloody Mary, as the Protestant faction came to call her, died sans heir, and half-sister Elizabeth came to the throne. Suffice it to say, widower Philip was not doing a happy dance. So by the time Elizabeth was on the throne and Sir Walter Raleigh came onto the persuasive stage, they both, as similarly strong Protestants, wanted England's influence to be every bit as convincing as Spain's, and then beat Spain and become even mightier. But this would be a difficult task. Very hard, literally, to have smooth sailing with Spanish galleons patrolling the sea. Not to mention a king of Spain desiring to have back what he felt was rightfully his. So when Raleigh proposed his idea of a North American colony, Elizabeth's ears perked up. But she was hesitant. She did not find it prudent for the government to invest funds into an American adventure since these monies needed to be used in the continual defense of Protestant revolts in Europe and for directly harassing Spain's resources. Although Spain held dominance in the Atlantic, Elizabeth's England was still successful at being an annoyance. England became the pestering mosquitoes to the Spanish giant. Sir Francis Drake, later known for his involvement in the Spanish Armada's defeat, and even later known as the Second Circumnavigator, who, by the way, claimed my home state of California for England, again to the irritation of Spain, was commissioned by the Queen to lead a fleet to the West Indies to wreak havoc on Spanish vessels and outposts. Elizabeth also licensed pirates and other private vessels that hailed from England as privateers of the crown, condoned in taking of booty from and wreaking mayhem on the evil empire. This was the backdrop of current events that found Raleigh and Elizabeth contemplating how to set up a permanent foothold in America. As mentioned before, English vessels were not ignorant of the North American coast. They had been coming in and out of North America for years, mainly on fishing expeditions. But a permanent outpost? And English colony? This would be the first. Since government money was out of the question, Elizabeth suggested that Raleigh find private investors to support his mission. With Raleigh's patent for North America, he could kill two birds with one stone. One, of course, was to get an advantage on the Spanish, and two, to get richer. As a patent holder, he could demand a percentage for any riches that any other explorer found. 
So instead of seeking a colony nearer to Noah, Newfoundland, he decided to explore options further south, closer to the Spanish West Indies. Not only would this be a colony where a plantation could be established that would be of interest to investors, but it would also be a very convenient place from where raids upon the Spanish could easily be conducted. In 1584, two ships under the commands of Arthur Barlow and Philip Amatis, and commissioned by Raleigh, who did not personally go, set sail on an expedition to scout out a place where a colony could be established. Here, Barlow and Amatis came ashore on Roanoke Island. Here they encountered the local Indians and, seemingly peacefully, took back to England native jewelry and two Indians named Mantio and Wanchis to drum up investor support and enthusiasm among prospective colonists. Barlow was a typical hyperbolic salesman who promoted Roanoke as the equivalent of the Garden of Eden. Elizabeth was so impressed that she personally invested in the project and allowed the whole area to be named Virginia in honor of her known nickname. Barlow's marketing campaign apparently worked because colonists and materials to build the colony sailed to Roanoke in 1585. Again, Raleigh himself did not go. His cousin, Sir Richard Grenville, led a group of only men on what turned out to be more of a temporary military expedition. When they arrived, the party built a fort and left Ralph Lane as governor of the new colony of Roanoke. Lane had only recently been in the Queen's service in Ireland. Relationships between the English and the natives began well. Lane's own journal describes his feelings of the local chief whom he called King and Savage. He said that this Savage was a grave and wise man who had discourse in matters concerning the state, not only of his own country, but also his neighbors round about him. However, Lane's military background and his lack of diplomacy caused him to take advantage of the Indians' congeniality. By his own account, when he felt the Indians were betraying him, he would take them prisoner. This, of course, did not bode well for continual good and peaceful relations. Indian raids became normality. Within a year, Lane and his men, except for about 15 who wanted to stay, had seen enough of Roanoke and made the decision to go back to England. Roanoke was effectively abandoned. Raleigh probably was discouraged, but he was not a quitter. It was determined that Roanoke was not suitable for colonists, and it would be hard to maneuver ships in and out of harbor, so a new plan emerged. The decision was made to find something more suitable a few miles north on the Chesapeake Bay, And in 1587, Raleigh, again not going himself, sent over a hundred men, women, and children to what is now the modern state of Virginia to start a brand new colony. They went under the leadership of John White. White had been on the previous Roanoke excursion. Not much is known about him prior to this time, but he was an artist, and his artwork is invaluable to understanding what was observed at the time. Do yourself a favor and do an internet search for John White Roanoke paintings, or something to that effect, and you'll be amazed at the detail of both colonial and native life that he portrays. Well, apparently John White and the Portuguese ship pilot named Simon Fernandes did not get along. 
Perhaps Human Resources hadn't done a background check on Fernandez before he was hired as the navigator because he was also known to Moonlight as a pirate. I don't think he was the best choice for navigating the ship, although he was known as a stellar navigator. So, en route to the Chesapeake Bay, the colonists stopped at Roanoke Island to pick up some men that had been left there by another supply ship earlier. The passengers, including White, got out to do a little stretching of their land legs when Fernandez donned his eye patch, placed his parrot on his shoulder, attached his peg leg, and switched into his other vocation. Okay, I don't know about the patch, the parrot, or the leg, or if he was playing pirate at this time or not, but one thing is for sure, he did not allow the passengers back on the ship. Roanoke Island, in July of 1587, once again had English colonists, unexpected as it was. The colony decided to make the best of it. They had heard of the men who had stayed on the island before, and they searched for them. They found bones. Talking to the friendly Indians under the leadership of Mantio, one of the Indians who had previously gone to England, they found out that some other tribesmen had killed the other colonists. Unwisely, a decision was made to take revenge for their fellow Englishmen. An attack was scheduled. An attack was made. But they ended up attacking friendly Indians, who were now no longer friendly. Also, this new colony was low on supplies. That's interesting. They had just arrived. Why wouldn't they have enough provisions? Oh, and the supplies they were supposed to pick up in the Caribbean before going to their final destination of the Chesapeake Bay? Like food, water, and salt? Fernandez had thwarted that effort as well and did not allow the supplies to be procured. Because of this, the colony convinced Governor White to go back to England to pick up said supplies. White did not want to leave his daughter Eleanor and his new granddaughter, who happened to be the first English baby born in the New World and appropriately named Virginia. White hesitantly left for England one month later in August. Because of the looming Spanish invasion, it wasn't until three years later, in 1590, when White returned to Roanoke. Arriving to the colony, he noticed it was abnormally quiet. On further inspection, he discovered that nobody was home. There was no sign of destruction. Everything seemed normal, except no people. Not panicking, White went to a tree where a plan had been made that if for some reason they had to vacate, they would leave the name of the place where they went on the tree. If it were by force, then a cross would be carved next to it. You know, if somebody were being forced to move, how would you have time to carve anything? Anyway, sure enough, he found the word Croatoan carved in the tree. No cross. He still didn't panic, thinking the colonists and his family were okay. Croatoan was the name of the local Algonquin tribe that lived on the North Carolina coast. It was also the name of another island about 50 miles to the south. Today it is called Hatteras Island. Of course, nowadays you can drive to it with a bridge and highway system, but back then, due to weather, John White was unable to go and ended up returning to England, never to see his family or any of the Roanoke colonists again. So what happened? Where did these people go? In our story, we can point to at least three possible suspects for the colonists' mysterious disappearance. One, the Indians did it. Two, the Spanish did it. Three, pirates did it. And there are more theories. Let's go first through these three. The Indians did it. Well, they certainly had a motive. Both Roanoke colonies had provoked the Indians' fury. 
Unnecessary blood, death, and destruction were shed on both sides. And then, bam, the Indians descend and the colonists vanish, disappear into thin air. No trace, no bones, no evidence of struggle, just gone. Well, this is the official story that has been handed down ever since the colony of Jamestown's inception 20 years later. Their story was that the Powhatan Indians massacred the complete lot of the Roanoke colonists. You may remember the young Indian girl Pocahontas who saved Captain John Smith's life from her chieftain father. Well, she was Powhatan. There was already bad blood between the Powhatans and the English. A story attributing a massacre to the Powhatan could only bring sympathy in England for the colonists. But here's the problem. There is absolutely no evidence of this happening. John Smith, the one who was saved by Pocahontas, you might think would have a bit of a grudge against Pocahontas' daddy but he never once mentions a story of a massacre in the report sent back home. In fact, he was sent reports from explorers Nathaniel Powell and Honest Hodkill, who had been sent out from Jamestown, who wrote up a report saying that they had made contact with Roanoke people about 50 miles inland. They even said that they had found crosses and letters that were carved into trees. But these reports were kept hidden. Why? Well, back home... There were people who were against colonization in Jamestown and were protesting taking Indian land in North America. Investors in the colony were not interested in negative press, so any justification for ire against the Indians would benefit their cause. Any violence toward the Indians could therefore be justified because of the official account being told about the horrendous actions committed against the folks in Roanoke. But being slaughtered by the Indians? Again, we don't know for sure. There were no signs of struggle. No signs of violence. Did the Indians do it? It's possible, but we don't know. Okay, number two. The Spanish did it. I'll go ahead and lay my imagination down now and say that this is where I've always cast my lot. There's just something fun in thinking about Spanish revenge. Don't get me wrong. I loved the Spanish. I lived and studied in Spain. Yes, some of my best friends at the time were Spanish. However, they don't exactly have a squeaky clean image when it comes to their actions in the New World. Given that England was being a pain in their backside, who knows? Maybe some Spanish contingent said enough is enough, especially if this took place after the Armada was defeated. The disappearance of the colonists in 1588 or soon thereafter, the exact same year as the great victory over the Spanish Armada, may not have been a coincidence. Historically speaking, wasn't Raleigh's primary motive to best the Spanish? To find a place near Spanish holdings from where raidings and pillaging parties would give the Spaniards an overall headache? Wasn't there already a cold and quasi-war taking place between Spain and England? the Spanish might have seen an opportunity to lay waste to an English colonial effort. It's possible, but again, no records. And actually, the Spaniards were continuing to search for an English colony as late as 1600. If they were still searching, then probably they hadn't found, eliminating them as a suspect. Besides, the Spanish weren't known for their tidiness after a good ransacking. And I really don't think that 530 years hence, if there had been a Spanish government conspiracy that Spain would still be holding on to any information. A lone Spanish wolf? Possibly doubtful. Possibility number three. Pirates. It does seem odd that moonlighting pirate Simon Fernandez would forbid needed provisions and just cast away the colonists at a place that they were not destined for. Was good old Simon Fernandez opportunistic? Did the colonists carry with them something that he saw of value? Well, if that was the case, why did he have to put them ashore? 
He could have just taken what he wanted on the ship and dumped the bodies overboard. Not likely. His was an official mission. Perhaps he saw the opportunity to come back after hours and do a little arring, matey, and some good old-fashioned pillaging. Hardly likely also. We know that Fernandez did go back to England and was instrumental in helping defeat the incoming armada, and then he went on a trip to the Azores and was never heard from again. Did he or one of his fellow buccaneers reroute and get back to Roanoke prior to John White returning? Not impossible, but certainly not known. So are there other options and theories? There are. That the colonists moved inland is not only corroborated by the sightings of crosses and letters on trees, but a bunch of stones known as dare stones started to appear in the 1930s. On them are supposed messages that leave clues to the colonists' whereabouts. They could be dismissed as hoaxes, but the first one found seems to be a message from Elizabeth Dare to her father, John White, to help him find where they went. It is written in a script that is quite convincing. Part of it says, Father, soon, after you go for England, we come hither, above half dead, ere to year more from sickness. This goes to the theory that the colonists may have moved inland and perhaps joined the Tuscaroras, whom the French Huguenot settlers reported seeing some Indians with blonde hair and blue eyes. However, Indian tribes were not large, and the colonist group was. It would have been difficult for a single tribe to support them. Perhaps they were divided up amongst several tribes, or some had already died of disease or had been killed. European artifacts have been found on Croatoan, Hatteras Island, including a ring that has been linked to one of the colonists who lived in the first Roanoke colony. Maybe some or the entire second colony did go there. However, in 2011, Brent Lane of the First Colony Foundation, an organization dedicated to solving this mystery, was studying a map that John White had made during the first Roanoke colony, and Lane's attention turned away from Hatteras to the mainland of North Carolina. He discovered under a couple of patches on the map a square shape that seemed to symbolize an unknown fort. This fort was on Salmon Creek in North Carolina. Perhaps the colonists knew about this fort and relocated there. And why was this possible fort hidden under some patches on the map? Does it go back to the conspiracy to keep the investors liquid during Jamestown? Possibly. Anthropologist Lee Miller has posited one of the more fascinating theories as to the motive behind the reason that Roanoke seemed to be destined to fail from the get-go. It has gained a lot of attention in the last decade. She believes, through her research, that there were those in England that were working to sabotage any colonial endeavor set out by Sir Walter Raleigh. She places the blame on Raleigh's court rival, Sir Francis Walsingham, Queen Elizabeth's secretary. Miller claims that Walsingham was a ringleader who conspired with a small group to bring Raleigh down. Their jealousy of Raleigh having the Queen's patent and her favor pitted this group against him. Simon Fernandez, she asserts, was part of the conspiracy. She too believes that the colonists moved inland. Perhaps some were killed within the crossfire of an Indian war that was going on at the time, but then they settled inland in North Carolina and perhaps mixed with friendly Indians. The evidence that she lays out is very convincing. I'm sure I have not discussed every theory out there, but here are a couple final theories from the oh-so-accurate social news and entertainment site BuzzFeed that I will leave you with. They claim that aliens or zombies could have been responsible for the colonists' disappearance. Yeah, okay. Those are a couple theories I'm going to go out on a limb here and throw into the wacko bin. 
So, what do we have? Where did the colonists go? Let's summarize. Possibly to the island of Croatoan. Possibly they went inland and mixed with the Indians. Maybe taken by the Spanish. Maybe taken by pirates. Possibly they were set up to fail by factions within Elizabeth's court. Bottom line, we don't know. But I assert that we are getting closer and closer to the truth. And therein, ladies and gentlemen, lies the mystery of Roanoke. What a pleasure it has been hanging out with you today. I'm a fan of this podcast, and it has been an honor now to be a participant. If you'd like to know more about me, or if you'd like to contact me, you can go to any of the well-known social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, using my name, Joel Kendrick, or contact me at jckendrick at yahoo.com, or check out my website at brooksideeducation.com. It has indeed been a blast, everybody. Goodbye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey. It's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.